Hello, everyone. Welcome to the San Francisco Shambhala Meditation Center. I'm very glad you all are all here. And it is my honor and Shambhala's honor to host tonight Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams Sensei. We're very grateful that you could be here. Reverend Angel is a maverick spiritual teacher, the founder of the Center for Transformative Change, and the author of several books, including, uh, I just learned 15 years ago this year, <laughs> Being Black, Zen and the Art of Living with Fearlessness and Grace. This has been hailed by many um, critics and teachers, and, and um, Alice Walker, the Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, said it was an act of love. Reverend Angel is uh, ordained as a Zen priest. She is a sensei, the second black woman recognized as a teacher in her lineage. And in recognition of her transformative social action, she received the Creating Enlightened Society Award from Sakyong Mipam Rinpoche, the lineage holder of the Shambhala tradition. You are all sitting in a Shambhala Center right now. <laughs> so I'd love to just close my introduction with a quote from Reverend Angel herself. Love and justice are not two. Without inner change, there can be no outer change. Without collective change, no change matters. So... Reverend Angel, thank you for being here, and I invite you to address us. Thank you. Uh, should I be wearing anything? Oh, if you'd like to wear the microphone, that would be very um, generous. Is it helpful? Um, I believe yes. so, yes, thank yes, you. It is. Yeah. is it on? Is it on now? <laughs> Let me turn the whole rig on it. Is it on? The closer you clip it, the less, the less feedback. Okay. I'm very technically inclined until I'm the subject of it. <laughs> <laughs> I was very concerned with how it affects my, my look. <laughs> Keeping it real. <laughs> So thank you so much. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Alex, for inviting me. Catherine, where are you? There you go. Thank you also. Um, well, sort of strange, slightly strange. I feel like I'm um, on the road, even though I actually live across the bridge. Um, this has been an all Shambhala week. I was at uh, Boulder Shambhala Center uh, 
on Wednesday and Atlanta Shambhala on Saturday. And so here I am, here now. Uh, and this is the first time I'm sort of in between both being at home and sort of off the road, but, but also still on the road in this way. Uh, so I'm, I'm noticing that it's um, an odd experience. I, I didn't unpack my bags just so I could really go with the whole not still on the road thing. <laughs> but my, my parrot objects <laughs> objected to my leaving. Um, so I am, uh, just before I, we, we were sitting in the room together, Alex was telling me that he's a composer. And I was, I just had a moment to think about that and that um, if I were to be a composer, I would be a really bad one because <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, on one note these days, and so you'll have to forgive me. Um, I'm, I'm weaving something in my head, and the uh, misfortune for most practitioners and people in the audiences that you get to be subject to the things that I'm weaving in my head that are still as yet unfinished. Um, so I'll, I'll do my best to, to at least be coherent. I think that this talk is about enlightened society. And of course, I chose that particular subject. It's an odd thing because everyone asks for a title, and as you can see, notes are not my forte. <laughs> they don't come with me. Um, and so I always feel like this moment of like, oh, I'm gonna just have to make something up <laughs> and give it to them and hope I remember at least what I was you know, thinking when I said it, and it almost never happens. Um, but because I'm only playing one note, it ends up being somewhere in the ballpark. So Enlightened Society, I of course chose because of Shambhala, um, and not just because I've really been thinking a lot about Shambhala uh, because I'm visiting, but also because I'm quite aware of the Sakyong's um, suggestion that the Shambhala centers uh, begin to rethink the way they are facing the world. And, of course, the core of Shambhala's teachings, which I have been very influenced by, um, and influenced in that way that is in my, in my blood, and it's, you know, it's in my, under my skin. Um, I've been influenced by the teachings even when I wasn't actually in, you know, actively engaging the work of Trungpa Rinpoche any longer in a direct way, but it was already transmitted. Uh, it was transmitted as far back that it's, it is, in fact, in my, in my book. Uh, there are many core understandings about what practice is and what the path, what the path is about, that are 
already woven into that book, even though I had no idea what I was doing at the time. And I still don't. Um, but I have enough years under my belt now that I can at least pretend. Um, but I, in my own work, think a lot about enlightened society. I tend not to think of the word enlightened, um, mostly because I think we get very confused and sort of high-minded when we use the, the word enlightened generally in society. It kind of takes people off into the stratosphere. Um, and we forget the ordinariness of this notion of creating enlightened society. The ordinariness in that what it's about is it's about uplifting people. And it's about understanding how it is that we need to be in order to be available to that call to create enlightened society, to be models, to be living examples of the potential and the aspiration for an enlightened society. And when I think about an enlightened or an awakened society, I don't think about a society that does not have difficulties or challenges. I don't think about a society that is somehow beyond suffering. But I do think about a society that creates space and possibility for all of the people in that society, all of the people in that society to have access to the resources that they need to thrive, to find joy in the midst of their suffering, to find peace in the midst of the challenges of everyday living. So the aspiration is not something that is way out there. We're all going to be happy and uh, rainbows across the sky and you know, leprechauns and <laughs> <laughs> pots of gold and that kind of thing. It, it wouldn't even mean that everybody has exactly the same thing. It's somehow it would all be perfectly equal. But it would be equitable. It would be equitable because, you know, we have as individual human beings based on our own generational momentum, our own conditions, our levels of exposure, we, we have different aspirations. and There's nothing wrong with that. And not all of us want to be doctors or lawyers or CEOs. Some of us want to be hairdressers. And we just want to take care of children and we want to be mothers and 
these are equally necessary, powerful places in society, but we've forgotten that and we no longer value it in that way so that we've created this kind of a confusion for people in which they're not entitled to be their authentic selves, but rather grasping after some idea of what they ought to be. And there's nothing wrong with who they are. And in an enlightened society, in an enlightened society, we would know that. We would know that who you are becoming is perfect. Who you are evolving into is perfect at this very moment. And we would value you as you are, not on the basis of how much you can earn, but rather on the basis of the happiness that you bring into the world because you yourself are happy. We would value your happiness because by finding your own happiness, you create the most potential for happiness in the world. <coughs> doesn't mean you create the most cogs and doodads. It doesn't mean you'll have the most social media hits or <laughs> followers. But it does mean that you will create the most happiness possible for you by being happy yourself. That's what an enlightened society is, and that's what an enlightened society would understand and manifest for people. One of the things that I wrestle with is the way in which our practice as, you know, someone called it in a boulder, a Buddhist leaning. <laughs> some people are Buddhist and some people are Buddhist inspired and some people are just Buddhist looking leaning. <laughs> um, some people are leaning this way. Uh, but wherever it is you stand or sit, uh, one has to recognize when one comes into contact with the, with the teachings even in their, you know, lightest form, I would say, even in their leaning form, that they're incredibly aspirational. That they're incredibly inviting. You know, once you get past that whole, like, life is suffering part. <laughs> <laughs> It's like a slight bit of confusion there. <laughs> it creates just this little bit of, you know, well, I don't know about that. Uh, but once you get, you know, past the, the, the initial 
confusion that that statement seems to cause for most people. <laughs> it's all pretty good from there. Right? I always think, you know, the Buddha was a really good salesman. He set up a problem. He said, right from the beginning, he said, life is suffering. Right? And it's a problem that most of us actually couldn't pretty much recognize. All we have to do is uh, take a moment and feel ourselves. And we're like, oh, okay, yeah, that one. <laughs> he's, he's got that one down. Whether I want to accept it or not is a different story, but that would be true. And it has a cause. And that one takes a little bit more work to actually really connect with the truth of, because you have to be honest with yourself. And a little bit of a challenge for some of us in that honesty thing, to say, uh-huh, all of that wanting after stuff and things, all of that unnecessary grasping is the root of my suffering. But um, invariably, we, we stumble into contact with the truth of that, even if we don't initially want to believe it. Um, usually, as a result of some kind of loss and the pain of our clenched bodies holding on becomes apparent to us. Mm -hmm. We can see, oh yes, I was holding on very tightly, and therefore the loss is extraordinarily painful. And little by little we come into contact with how many things we're holding on to, and how many losses we're suffering as a result of that. But like all good salesmen, he then said, oh, but there is an answer. <laughs> and of course, by now, <laughs> all we want is the answer. <laughs> right? There is a problem. There is a reason for the problem. There is a way out of it. And here it is. That's pretty good. You know. I don't think McDonald's does nearly as well. <laughs> um, and the thing is, is that when, when you. Um, get into these, uh, you know, what's traditionally called the Four Noble Truths, there's an interesting thing, which is that it doesn't say life is suffering for some of you. And there's an answer for a few of you. It doesn't say life is suffering if you are, if you are impoverished. 
doesn't say life is suffering if you are queer. It doesn't say life is suffering if you're black. It just says life is suffering. Or more accurately, that life is characterized by an experience of confusion and uncertainty. And when he goes on, he doesn't say, and the answer, the potential for transcending, for working with the suffering, is available to those of you that can pay the most money. He never says the answer is available for those of you that have the biggest cars or occupy a CEO position. He just says it's possible. It's possible if you are willing to follow this path. And so for me, the challenge, the, the thing that I wrestle with all the time, is where it is that we as Buddhist-centric <laughs> uh, seem to have lost some of our way in regard to offering this aspirational path to everyone possible without fail, without limitation, without division. How is it that with such an aspirational teaching, how is it with such a profound set of central principles that give us everything we need to understand our condition. To understand the cause of our condition. To understand that we have the potential to work with this condition. And even how? How is it that we can have narrowed our path, narrowed access to this path, 
to a seemingly elite few. What else to think about that? Mm. What it means for us as Buddhist centric. is not what I, what I imagine some of you might think, think it means. You might think that what it means is that we have denied people access to a profound teaching that could provide them some hope in the face of great challenges. That's possible and likely. Or you might think that, that I think that it means that there are people that are marginalized in many different ways in our society that are going to miss out on something we've got here. And that's also likely. But I think what it most means is that those of us that are on the path are missing out. I think that what it means is that those of us that are practitioners and view ourselves as practitioners are limiting our potential for our own liberation. And I think that that is becoming more and more clear with each passing day. I think that our aspiration to create an enlightened society is running head-on into the incongruence of how we are sharing our teachings and how we are creating and not creating Sangha. And I think it makes us smaller than we are. I think it makes us limited where we can be boundless. In Buddhist teachings, there's often a, we are often talking about emptiness. 
uh, Zen really loves the whole emptiness <laughs> thing. And I often talk about the fact that um, the term that gets translated as emptiness, many of us realize that English is woefully uh, inadequate when it comes to translating most of the subtlety of the Sanskrit and Pali terms that it's trying to get at. Mm. So this, the term is uh, shunyata in Sanskrit. And in Japanese, the way that they translate shunyata is they actually use the, the character for uh, ku. It's called ku. And ku means sky. So depending on your orientation, you could see ku as sky, as empty, or you could see it as boundless. And if you, if you get that, that they're the same, then you, then you get what emptiness actually is. Emptiness is not our Western sense of emptiness, which is lack, right? We associate it with lack. And getting rid of in the sense of um, loss that often brings up grieving for us and attachment and holding on. But none of us would try to Imagine that we could hold on to the sky. But we might want to fulfill it. And our teachings are boundless like that. What the Dharma, what our teachings, what this path has to offer is boundless. And every day that each one of us practices in a way or runs our centers or holds our seat or moves through life and encounters other people in a way that is less than boundless, we limit ourselves. not just in an ordinary limiting ourself way, but we limit our contribution, our personal contribution to that enlightened society. Does that make sense? One of the things that mm, I feel like I'm personally tired of hearing are all of those other stories, which is about 
who's getting left out and what we need to do for them when we think about the ways in which we may not be creating enlightened society, the ways in which we may not be manifesting that right here in our own community. I want people to be concerned with what it means for you. I want us to begin to think really long and really hard about what part of yourself you are not able to bring into this room, what part of yourself you do not feel safe sharing, what part of your burden and your pain get checked at the door. in your sangha, in your community. Does anyone have anything like that? Anything that you may not be bringing into this room? Maybe one thing, maybe two. some part of you that you feel, well, I can bring this, but not, not that other thing. I can say this, but not that. I can show this face, but not that one. I can share this pain, but not the other. We, as a community, as a great community, as a Mahasangha, we are suffering We are suffering from the loss of the deepest possible connection with our own hearts. To the degree that we are, by this point, actively participating in a momentum of leaving people out, creating more clubs than sanghas. We are losing the most powerful potential for aspiration for actual solutions to the most intractable 
issues in our society. We're losing touch with the moral ground that comes from being rooted in the profound teaching of we are all connected. When we leave some people out. We lose ground with even the ability to profess creating an enlightened society. when our own communities are so incongruent with that reality. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that be a shame? Wouldn't it be a shame that at this time, when it's so clear that what we can use is hope, that what we could use is possibility, that what we could use is truly an aspiration that an enlightened society is not some kind of absurd notion that is beyond us, that we're just playing some kind of uh, board game, pretending to ourselves, dressing up in our cute jackets or our robes, you know, groovy bibs. <laughs> Do you get it that without actually embodying the potential, the full potential of this teaching, we reduce ourselves to a certain kind of absurdity. We reduce ourselves to a passing fad, yet another form of entertainment. We have potential. We have enormous potential. I told this um, about this reading, uh, this story about um, Bimrao and Bedkar. Is anyone familiar with him? He is uh, Gandhi's contemporary, and he was untouchable. You know. So as far as uh, India was concerned at that time, you know, he's basically Michael Brown, right? And uh, but he he's he's like Michael Brown, and he wrote the Constitution for India. <laughs> 
Right? So he is an untouchable. He's effectively the, our social equivalent of a, of a dark-skinned black man. And, uh, but the, the, his, his circumstances were such that he had access to education. And his brilliance, his genius, became apparent. And as a result, he is the person that wrote the Constitution. And so to make a long story short, at some, uh, at some point, of course, you know, Bimrao is just like the, standing in the place that, that many black men and black women are standing now going, this sucks. And I don't want to be a part of this society in which my life does not matter. I don't want to be a part of this society in which the value of my life is perceived as less than others based on in this in our case the color of skin and what Ambedkar came to the conclusion of in that case based on the caste that you were born in and so he did the smart thing he went looking around and said well if I can't get rid of caste within Hinduism, I'll get rid of Hinduism. And he studied, we're talking about a really genius guy, and he had to do a lot of work, it took him many years because he didn't have Google. <laughs> and he studied the world's religions, everything he could get his hands on. And oddly enough, came back to this sleeping religion that had been born in his own country, Buddhism, in order to discover the religion that would most fit the practice, the... He wasn't looking for a religion, per se, right? He was looking for a philosophy, for a set of teachings that most fit the need. And what was the need? It, the need was that it had room for everyone. That there was nothing about the way the teachings were designed and constructed that set anyone aside. That it didn't leave anyone out. Of course, there were human interventions all along. This was 56, right? That's so it was roughly about 56, 1956. So of course there have been many human failings in terms of presenting the teachings. But the teachings themselves had nothing that left anyone out. So here we are again. And we have within the palm of our hand a set of teachings. And a set of practices. 
to work with our most unskillful frames of mind. And we have a path. And we have core, core teachings that tell us the truth of we cannot do this alone. We cannot survive the calamity that we are facing in this world. You can take your pick, whatever your calamity today might be. War, climate change, the economy, you know, uh, human trafficking, you know, just, un, just endless suffering, hunger. Pick one. Two, three. We cannot, we cannot solve, we cannot penetrate these issues alone, much less create anything near an enlightened society. Not because we leave those other people out but because when we create those conditions in which, that leave other people out, what it means is we've left ourselves out. There is no in and out. There is no, oh, we've got it, and they don't in an enlightened society. It's not possible. We cannot create an enlightened society that leaves others out because by its nature it means we have left ourselves out. We have left out our own suffering. We have left out our own sense of connection. We have left out our own hearts. And we've given them all over to our fears. And it is only our fear that is keeping us from manifesting an enlightened society. Only our fears. Bless you. So my question to each of you is what is the fear that you need to bring forward? What is the fear that is keeping you from being your authentic self?
What is the fear that is keeping you from even believing in the possibility of an enlightened society? And what do you need to do? What one step do you need to take to change the conditions in your community so that you can bring that fear forward? Because if you can't bring it forward, you can't work with it. If you can't let it be seen, you cannot work with it. If you can't acknowledge its presence in your life, if you can't acknowledge the way that it's holding you back, you will remain a prisoner to it. And I, for one, would like to have you here. Would you say your name, please? Really, what do we do? You mean here? Who's the we? What can I do as an individual? The only thing really any individual can do is to be honest about what holds them back. Right? If, if you just get out there and like try to do stuff out there, it's just more stuff like that's out there. Mm -hmm. right? And it's kind of like faking the funk. <coughs> you, 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 we really have to get this. I really I hope people hear this. We're, this is not about what's out there. <coughs> this is not our problem. We all know better, I mean, frankly. And especially here, we're not like in a little corner in the, in the country somewhere. We know better. We have to be willing to touch 
the place in which we are holding ourselves back from touching other human beings. And when you touch it, what to do about it will become clear to you. If it's not clear to you what to do about it, it means you haven't A, touched it, or B, sat with it. Right. So some of us like touch it, maybe. <laughs> Take off. I don't mean peek at it. I don't. Right. I don't mean just. Whoop. Yep. There. Yeah. There it is. Right. When I say touch, it's like in the Christian sense of touch. It's like you have to lay hands on it, um, and it reveals itself, and that's the power of working with our fear. We, we cannot work around fear. You can only actually work through it. And the only way to work through fear is to actually walk up and touch it. But the magic of it is that on the other side of fear is liberation. Thank you. Would you say your name, please? Yeah, Catherine. Catherine, thank you. Yes. Would you say your name also? Yes. My yes. name is my name is Arelli. Is Arelli? Arelli. 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 Yes. Okay. I was thinking while I was listening, you know, um, I think your the talk was very powerful. Touched something very deep on me, and I wonder how I gonna how do you also not fall into being kind of blamed, you know, kind of even guilty about that. Oh, you just get over yourself. <laughs> it's not about you, yeah. right? It's just, yeah, sure. yeah, not about you. That's yes. what it is. Yes, definitely. And I was feeling that, you know, I, I was feeling the kind of, oh, you know, and at the same time, wait a minute, no, it's not, it's not definitely not about that. So, um, I, um, I think it's a very powerful statement and incredibly transformative in a way. And, and I definitely leave the, the room with a very a huge question, like um, in the how, you know. Really, I think it's like... How? Yes. It's the same Just question. I think it's a very, as you, uh, because at the same time that you are trying, you are not, we are not really all, also alone, right? Mm -hmm. We are really with many other people at the same time, you know? We are, we are kind of individuals, and, and I was thinking, okay, it's a process of reflection and honesty, and at the same time, mm -hmm. I also have a cultural background, you know? Like, where I was born, where I have been living, my parents, my upbringing, my education, Blah, 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 blah. So I cannot... A what kind of background? All kind of backgrounds, mm -hmm. you know, from cultural, cultural, cultural different. background, mm -hmm. education, and everything. Mm -hmm. you know, I think we all are carrying that, and it's very strong, very strong in us. We can just deny where the place where we come from. Actually, <coughs> some of our strength 
or our strength come actually also from that. Yes. You know, and it determines us at the same time. You know, things that you can see and things that you cannot see. So, um, well, anyway, I think it was another question. Let me just say one thing. Um, you've got to kind of imagine that um, you've got this like enormous elephant. And it's not just in the room, it's sitting on all of us. It's just sitting on all of us. It's like the burden of it, the weight of it is on all of us. And, you know, because of the uneven distribution of things, it's on some of us, feels more heavy than others of us. But effectively, it's on all of us. No one of us is going to move the elephant. You've just got to put your hands on it and start moving. Trying to figure out, like, how are we going to get... It's sort of obnoxiously arrogant. Just put your hands on it and start moving. Thank you. Thank you, Reverend Angel, for addressing us. Uh, thank you for being here. Thank you, Alex. And thank you, all of you, um, for being here as well. Um, we have some, some hot water for tea. <laughs> um, I know that there are several different kinds of cookies. Uh, the, the tea and the cookies are meant to facilitate us being together and talking about uh, or feeling into what we just um, experienced. Um, so, by no means do you need to hurry out the door. Um, you can s stay, talk, maybe even help clean up. <laughs> and um, and uh, please come back uh, again um, next week, and we'll have, we have a, a Dharma talk every fourth Wednesday. And next Wednesday is from... Next month. Next month, uh, um, fourth Kimber Wednesday. Simpkins. Mm. Simpkins. Simpkins. Simpkins, yeah. She's a she's a local Bay Area yoga teacher, and she's just wrote a book entitled that's just being released called Full, and it's the story of how she basically learned to love herself despite an eating disorder. So it's very much about body, and how we relate to ourselves, how we relate to our own bodies. Great. So um, I should say just a couple things. Um, thank you to Catherine Ryle who has been programming this Dharma Night series. So thank you very much to Catherine, and also thanks to Gary Snyder, who is uh, our coordinator for the Dharma Night series, and then um, peppered through the room are scores of um, brilliant volunteer staff, um, and thank you to all of you as well. So, okay, have a good night.